0: Good morning. So there is children's church this morning, I'm assuming, so the we hope the vacuum doesn't drag us all to the back of the room. Anyway. <laughs> I think they outnumber us this morning. we're continuing to work our way through 1st Peter chapter 2 and thinking back to uh, the last week or two we've seen that Peter has drawn a series of interesting contrasts between those believing and those not believing those not stumbling and those stumbling those obeying and those not obeying those in the light those in the dark those who are people of god Those who are not people of God, those who realize they have been shown mercy, and those who reject being shown mercy. And all of these things called attention to the unique identity of the follower of Jesus. But it also sets the stage for a reality of the Christian life that as believers, as a believer, you will come into conflict with the world around you. It's a given. Is not an if. Peter wrote, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, or probably better, non-Christians, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation now I'm already covered that verse but it really forms an introduction also to the next section so I want to focus on a couple things in it that, uh, that uh, he didn't maybe do so much of, didn't need to because he was bringing it to the other, from the other side we're reminded that we're sojourners and exiles now that's how Peter addressed this letter to the uh, chosen exiles or the expatriates I was arguing for a translation of that of the dispersion they were by definition different from the people around them and the difference necessitated that their conduct wherever God had placed them should reflect their Lord and Savior by being honorable now the word honorable there actually occurs twice in verse 12 Uh, first is honorable and then is good it's the same word and it's all talking about conduct I like the ESV translation honorable. Uh, another one that I've uh, come across that I like is virtuous. Um, unfortunately uh, both honor and virtue have fallen on hard times in our society. Uh, most English translations just opt for translating as good. But that doesn't really completely capture the sense of what that term meant to the first century audience. It meant, and to kind of use a lexicon definition here, having acceptable characteristics or functioning in an agreeable manner with a foundation of positive moral quality. Now, all that has to do with how people observe you, not something you do kind of on your own. Peter will use the same word to describe Christians and our our conduct in the church in chapter 4. The kind of Christian conduct that was honorable was what could be seen by others especially those outside of the church and to illustrate this Peter chose three areas, three relationships in society uh, that became or were particularly challenging for the first century believers the first one was their relationship to the government the second one was the relationship of slaves and the situation they were in and the third one was marriage. Now, Paul talks about these relationships too in the household code sections uh, of the Ephesians and Colossians. Uh, but he's really talking about relationships between believers and believers. Peter is talking about relationships between believers and non believers, pretty much exclusively in what he addresses. Now, these three examples government, servitude, marriage, form part of a larger discussion that kicks off in this part of uh, Peter, and it actually goes through all of chapter 2, all of 3, and really isn't finished until you get to the end of chapter 4. And that's the last time that Peter uses a set, one of three words, there are six instances of these three words in that between now and the last of chapter 4, that are all made up of the adjective good and the verb to do. So he could translate it, good-doer or good-doing. And we see him in chapter 2, verse 14, and 15, and 20. We'll see him in chapter 3, verse 6, and 17. And we'll see it again, finally, at the end, very last verse, of chapter 4, in verse 19. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while good-doing or doing good. Now what's interesting about these three words is they all began with the same eight letters. <laughs> That's a lot to have in common. And so they would have been really easily recognizable and would stand out to the audience that heard them because they're also fairly rare words. We find four of them in First Peter, four of them outside of First Peter, and two of them only in First Peter. So it would have caught the attention of his audience. What's interesting about this set of words in the language of the day, was it was a set that was used to describe those people who just exhibited exceptional uh, virtue in their regard for other people, in their how they treated other people, the things that they provided, oftentimes people who were uh, well-to-do that would give gifts to the community, would do things for the community. These words would be used for them. Um, they really talked about behavior that was very, had a very high standard to it. And Peter uses this standard then, now as the standard for our behavior. It's supposed to be exceptional, exemplary. Now, is that a problem for us? Should it be a problem for us? Well, yeah, it's a challenge for us for sure, but we should never water down that expectation because what have we seen in Peter so far? If indeed you have tasted the Lord is good, if you call him Father who judges impartially and partially according to one's deeds, then how else should we conduct ourselves during this time of our exile? So let's take a look at what De- Peter does with these relationships, these difficult ones particularly, and instructions to the believers. First, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. <coughs> the first word in this passage, translated be subject, is a command. This is not a choice, this is a command. And it was applied, be applied to every human institution. Now we're going to come. We're going to talk a little bit more of that before we're done. But for right now, typically the motivation within a human society for doing things a certain way to conform to institutions comes from a desire to avoid some sort of uncomfort or discomfort. Um, this could come from a government enforcement of some kind. It could come from social pressure. However, as Christians. We, they were not, and we are not, supposed to be motivated by fear of any kind, except maybe fear of the Lord. The proper motivation, Peter says, was for the Lord's sake. The command "be subject" was not enjoined on anything inherently worthy in these institutions. Peter had in mind because their function toward ordering society and regulating human behavior was and is. The will of God, whether we like it or not. We'll come back to this, like I said. With the reference to emperors, to the emperor and governors, Peter made it clear that government authority was his first point of discussion here, his first relationship. He reminded believers that the human government was ordained by God. That happened back in Genesis Um, for the purpose of restraining evil in in a fallen world, and we have plenty of that. And encouraging those who do good, this is the good doers. This is the first time we see this now. So do these institutional leaders always act in a manner consistent with this task? Or even worse, thinking about it, consistent with biblical values? Uh, They don't, do they? They are, after all, just other simple human beings, just like we are. But those individuals who occupy the positions of authority are ultimately there because our sovereign God has ordained them to be there. Both the Old Testament and New Testament are very clear on this point. This understanding allowed Peter and other biblical writers to presume the positive nature of government and governing authorities as the default. But what if these authorities become openly hostile? Toward Christianity. We've never seen anything close to the hostility the church went through for the first two centuries. We aren't even close, folks, no matter how loud you may hear some people complain. We're not even close. But to try to make it more relevant, let's ask the question this way. How are we to respond to unfounded criticism and accusations about our beliefs and actions? Put another way, how are we to silence our detractors? By the brilliance of our rhetoric? By owning them on social media? By always having the last word? Well, those are rhetorical questions. The answer is no. The scriptural method for silencing the ignorance of foolish people is not by returning abuse for abuse whether it's verbal or otherwise the proper and wise response is by good doing with kindness and thoughtfulness toward others now in fact when you get in these kind of debates or situations or involving words which they often do probably our words are best held in check <coughs> james was responding to similar situations <coughs> No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Who is wise among you and understanding? By his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere I should note that the words good conduct here in James are exactly the same words that Peter uses in verse 12 of course the tongue is not limited to you know just using our vocal cords um, in fact our society can't seem to tame its fingers when they get close to keyboards or text pads but um, the world of anger and grievance and vitriol that bombards us every day is not only contrary to Christian behavior or conduct, it's actually toxic to the church. And I think that's one of the things that Peter is trying to get across. Now, Paul, Peter adds some more context here. Live as people who are free, <coughs> not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now the verb in verse 16, there isn't one. It's borrowed from verse 13. So we're still talking about the idea of being subject to. And what we have here in this next section, in these verses, is an expansion on that where three phrases are each introduced by the word as in the original text to come up with sort of fleshing out this idea of what this being subject means. So I've kind of got them up here a little bit literally. <coughs> we start out as free people, as not covering free will, but on the contrary, as slaves of God. So to kind of take a look at each of those. The free people one requires some cultural context. If we consider freedom as being able to do anything we want whenever we want, wherever we want, then we will never understand the New Testament writers say about freedom. The idea of freedom in the first century focused on the freedom to develop virtuous inner qualities or character, no matter where you were in that very rigid social stratification, no matter what your circumstances were. And getting that historical context correct is important to level setting for all three of the relationships that Peter's going to deal with. The second phrase is difficult to translate literally, but the point is clear. For the followers of Jesus, freedom can never be a cover-up for evil. Interestingly, in the New Testament, the word translated cover-up here is only used one other time. And Paul uses it when he quotes Psalm 32.1 in the Greek Old Testament. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Now, as a human propensity for sin that required the covering or atonement that Jesus accomplished on the cross. And using our freedom from the penalty of that sin that came with the new birth in order to do evil, well, that's just manifestly wrong. And if you don't think this is a problem in the church, just ask a couple other questions. Do contemporary Christians ever act as if the ends justify the means? That anything said or done is okay as long as it's for a good cause? Such an approach actually removes all restraints and justifies any behavior. And can be found in everything contemporary from Christian organizations covering up the sexual abuse of their leaders to the ridiculous extravagances of the prosperity gospel preachers. The final phase phrase begins with a strong adversity, be on the contrary. This is the contrast to it all. God has freed us from the bondage of sin but Peter wrote, this should inspire us living as obedient children not conformed to the passions of inner of our former ignorance, called to be holy in all of our conduct, were freed in order to live as slaves, as slaves of God. I came prepared this morning. Amen. Yeah, no more Demosthenes imitations. <clears throat> So the command be subject to every human institution in verse 13 needs to be combined in this context with the th- four commands that we see in verse 17. And there's different ways to look at these commentators have come up with, and so I just you can choose. It could be a chiasm where you have honor everyone honor the emperor that sort of sandwich or bookend the things that are really important love the brethren for brotherhood and fear God other commentators prefer looking at this as a comparative kind of thing honor everyone but love the brotherhood it's a step step further fear God but you know honor the emperor but you fear God just honor the emperor or because the first one is a different tense than the following three It could be, honor everyone, and you do that through love the brethren, fear God, honor the emperor. You can choose. Uh, There's no real consensus on this. Uh, New Testament scholar Karen Jobs summarized this, quote, while the syntax and, and precise structure are difficult to decide, the thrust of the exhortation is clear. Christians must live well by giving each type of relationship its due. So, to have a reverential fear of God is generally pretty easy for us. I mean, after all, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? It's what Psalms Proverbs tells us. And we like to think ourselves wise. Love the brotherhood can be a little more challenging... Uh, It's easy to love the brethren in the abstract, sometimes not in the concrete. Fortunately, we can rely on the aid of the Holy Spirit that indwells us all, each one of us as believers, to smooth those relationships if we'll let him do it. Honor everyone without exceptions. That will test us, especially when we disagree with those outside the church or when we are reviled for our beliefs. Honor the emperor, that will also be a test, and it occurs uh, at least once every four years in our culture, which returns us to the relationship of the Christian and government institutions. So how do we honor political authorities? Paul's letters provide more specific guidance, but they completely concur in the principles with Peter. Paul wrote, Let every person be subject, there's the same word, by the way, same command, to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. That seems pretty straightforward. Now Paul had some more things that were pretty good about this. In his counsel to his co-worker Titus, he built on the same foundation uh, as Peter does. When he wrote, Remind them, that's the church, Be submissive, actually that's the same word, is subject yourself in the other passages to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Remember I said this is a high bar that Peter's setting here. And to Timothy, he reminds him that we need to pray for these people. Let's pray for these authorities. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceable and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I'm just going to let that pretty much speak for itself. That brings us then to the next challenging relationship. The example Peter chose was very specific. The word translated "servants" here, or "slaves" in some other translations, is actually a word used exclusively for someone who is a domestic servant or a household servant. In fact, a couple English translations decide you know use "household slaves" or uh, "domestic slaves" to make the distinction. the The word itself is only used four times in the New Testament, so it's a pretty pretty specific specific thing going on here now two things remarkable about that the first remarkable part was that peter had an exhortation to christian household slaves at all now when you look at the ethical literature of the uh, uh, greco-roman world they had little to say to slaves i mean after all what need does a slave have for ethics or virtue The second part, Peter chose a type of servitude that was not like these masses of slaves who worked the large farms and mines or who were laboring in the massive Roman building projects. Household slaves were probably better off materially, but they lived and worked in close proximity to an extended family, and they were expected to show adequate respect for that family, and especially the head of the household. And that meant also accepting the family's values and religious preferences. Now, you're a Christian household slave. What did Peter have to say about your conduct in these situations? He started with the same word used as a command in verse 13, but it's not a command this time. It's just a, it's just descriptive. It's not imperative. Servants and so servants being subject to your masters. It just recognizes the situation. A slave doesn't have any choice where they are. They're being subject. But they're to do it with all respect. This respect is I've got to get up here where I can stay in my nose and so I don't go too far away from them in many ways. Uh, it's the word fear, phobos, but of course that included a sense of reverence. And don't miss that Peter wrote all respect. Christians don't get to choose to extend the respect only to those they think deserve it or only to what they think deserves it. And Peter closed that option when he added, not only the good and gentle, but also the unjust. Unjust has been translated in other English Bibles as harsh, perverse, unreasonable, cruel. It's the Greek word skolios which means bent or crooked. And it was used to describe behavior that was unscrupulous, dishonest, overbearing, as well as cruel or perverse. Regardless of the of, of what was being done, what they received from the master, there should be no difference to the Christian attitude of submission with respect. And along with respect, Peter added that the Christian slave also endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. The assumption was that all slaves would suffer unjustly to some degree. Fallen, sinful human nature guarantees, to quote Job's again, that injustice will reign until the Lord's return and and that to bear up under unjust suffering without sinning is in fact the calling of every believer, regardless of your social status. Bearing such treatment would be possible only by being mindful of God. The idea there is a continuous consciousness of God. It focused on who the believer, who are you really serving? Since the Father of Jesus has only one Lord... Christian freedom rests not on an escape from service but on a change of master. And enduring unjust treatment should be viewed as a gracious thing. The phrase that stresses God's favor toward the believer and who responds to the most difficult demands of good conduct. Like the earlier caution we had about our freedom or not to use it as a cover up for evil, we also see that here a caution to these slaves, if a Christian slave refused or failed to do his or her job because of rebelliousness or selfishness and incurred punishment, that did not qualify for God's gracious favor, and that does not qualify for patient endurance. How many things we bring on ourselves? And we call them suffering somehow in the name of the Lord. Peter's final comment essentially repeated and therefore emphasized that God would always extend grace when good doing. Here is another call for the Christian to model conduct beyond expectations which would be noticed by those occupying those superior positions. Which would be noticed by those Around us, inside and outside the church. Which brings me back to the topic of every human institution that we talked about at the beginning. It's unqualified. And I want to spend a few minutes exploring the idea of human institutions and how we relate to them. In any culture, the institutions embody the political, economic, social, and religious aspects of the culture. And it's important to understand that all of them are usually very tightly interconnected in some way. Institutions can be formal or informal. In both cases, they exist to instill and enforce the mores of the culture. The customs, uh, conventions, practices that make a particular culture or society unique. The jobs we have, the clothes we wear, the leisure activities we enjoy, Uh, The food we eat, our traditions, our goals, our family structures, our values, these are all shaped by the more immediately close to us institutions of the culture in which we were raised and in which we live. Governments, particularly local governments, civic organizations, schools, and entertainment are probably the most prominent in our culture. But you can throw in churches as well if you expand that definition to include mosques and synagogues and temples and look at a bigger worldwide kind of picture of it. Then at the more abstract level, we also are formed by cultural assumptions that are instilled by these institutions. Um, Wilkins and and Sanford have a description of this in their book, Hidden Worldviews. He said, these are so deeply embedded in culture that we don't see them. Worldviews hidden in plain sight. Now, in our culture, some things that would fall in that category would be individualism, consumerism, therapeutic salvation, It would also include things that affect our plausibility structure, what we consider to be valid, or, or, or binding, and what, what, what those things are constrained in our society, in our culture, by materialistic science and moral relativity. We fit into a culture because we have absorbed its assumptions and we've been formed by its institutions. So as Christians, to what extent are we to be subject to every human institution in our particular culture? We need to recognize, first of all, that we are not called into some kind of a vague, private spirituality that only involves the individual and God. That's pretty common, even in the church. That is a biased and mistaken assumption about the nature of religion that's held by contemporary Western culture. That's not what you see in those religions. Christianity, like every other religion, involves a unique way of thinking and acting that cannot avoid being social. You can't keep it private. And unless a person happens to live in a culture that is completely consistent with their religious worldview they will come into conflict with the culture that's around them. According to Peter and other New Testament writers, we're now aliens in this world. Peter describes us as sojourners and exiles because our allegiance is exclusively to Jesus as Lord. Miroslav Volf wrote, quote, Christians are the insiders who have diverted from their culture by being born again. They are, by definition, those who are not what they used to be, those who do not live like they used to live. The challenge for the recipients of Peter are the same as we have today, and that's determining what parts of our larger larger cultural context are consistent with the gospel of King Jesus and what parts are not. So does Peter offer us any guidance in how we do that? How we go about evaluating those things in our lives? In this world in which we're foreigners, even though we grew up in it? I believe he does, and it's found in two sources that have already been introduced in Peter. The first one, continuous growth in the word of God. Peter wrote, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the good news that was preached to you, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Uh, Marty mentioned last week that this analogy of, the, of the milk and the word of God, the way Peter uses it here, is that something that we should long for, like a newborn longs for, longs for food? They get hungry, we're, we're just driven to it. Paul summarized this to his co worker Timothy All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's the kind of stuff we need to evaluate. Not only our cultural assumptions that we may not even know we have, but also the cultural institutions around us that we touch and maybe are parts of. We're sojourners in this life. That means that we are on our way to a destination. We haven't gotten there yet. The destination is the new heaven and the new earth. And until we get there, We need to be sure that we keep learning and examining our lives in the light of biblical truth. Now, the second thing that we have that Peter offers, that he's already introduced, that helps us along with this, is participation in a community of believers. Peter wrote, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, Paul had some very similar things to say, in fact, to some of the same language that's involved here in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal you there, to, to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, most of us, particularly in the Romans 12 passage, tend to think of this as Paul talking to us as individuals. But it's interesting because every noun and pronoun, every verb and pronoun in that passage is plural, except one and it's the renewal of your mind that's singular so what does that mean well that means the implication is that our individual minds are not going to be properly renewed apart from our involvement with the community of faith you don't do this on your own you do this in a community a community of faith that claims not only claims to be Christian but it has to be one that holds itself accountable to Scripture, and I think one that provides an atmosphere in which we can make ourselves accountable to one another. The point is we can't figure this out alone. We need each other. We need to do it together. The Word of God community of believers. In the foreign culture in which we live, that we're trying to navigate every day, we desperately need both of these inputs in order to determine what must be rejected, what can be retained, and what needs to be reshaped about our participation in any of the institutions of the world around us. Christianity has had a remarkable history of successfully flourishing in very different cultures. When it has lost its way it's done so by compromising to the point that it no longer is different from the culture abandoning one scripture after another in the process or it loses its way by attempting to use coercive power to impose itself on the culture and in the process jettisons the power of the Holy Spirit. In either case the result is invariably a loss of faithfulness to the gospel and a loss of focus of the hope of the coming kingdom of God. So what has the church done that has successfully spread the gospel while avoiding the extremes of compromise or conquest? Well, we can start with the wisdom Peter has brought to the discussion so far. And he's going to add more, by the way. We're not done with it. First, our attitudes toward the cultural institutions around us must rest on the foundations that Peter commands be subject to every human institution and honor everyone. This means that generally we defer to the institutions like what would be expected of anybody who is an expatriate or foreigner in another country. You can't live in England and insist on driving on the right side of the road. We can probably all come up with lots of illustrations like that because these are all institutions that you encounter all the time and we just conform to them. That's we're brought up this way, we're formed this way. And we need to look at them and evaluate them and decide, well, there's nothing really wrong with this one. I think we're good here. And so we need to defer to those whenever we come across them. The second part, second thing that we've seen so far, in whatever ways we encounter institutions that are in conflict with our faith, what about those situations? Our actions should always result in good doing and should be characterized by respect and patient endurance. Simple to say, very challenging to do. Finally, we need to recall Peter's earlier command that our hope be firmly fixed on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This means that we will always be subversive in the institutions of the world in which we live as exiles. But it's not a subversion that calls for revolution of some kind, that seeks to replace the existing worldly powers with Christian substitutes. Peter did not seek to overturn the imperial government of Rome. He did not seek to overturn the economic foundations of slavery. The subversion comes from our allegiance to our Lord Jesus Christ above all else. In general, our model for life, then, is not the expectations of the human institutions around us. We can do that without thinking. Our model an example is a crucified and risen Savior. And that's the topic for next week. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to hear these things sometimes. These are challenges. These are commands. We don't have a choice for them. They're areas in which we all admit our weakness. We all admit we have a long way to go, a lot to do. We pray, Father, that you'll help us all to realize that we have the Word of God on our side, that we can look to that for guidance and for help in these things. And when we have the body of believers...